this week we were gifted by uh, a really cool family in our church, a uh, one-night stay at a hotel down in Phoenix. And it's a, it's a popular hotel. It's really beautiful. It's designed for kids, so it has a water park inside. Now, this water park is amazing. My kids absolutely had a blast, but they've got all kinds of other activities for kids. And so they've got like like high ropes courses and mini golf and uh, just all this stuff that's designed for kids. And you don't see a single frown on kids throughout the whole time, except for when they get overly tired. Because let's face it, an indoor water park, kids are going to get tired real quick. But, but for the most part, you don't see a frown at all and, uh, on the kids, and they're having a blast. And you, but Jen and I, as we were spending time there, we started to notice something. And we started to notice that there was a lot of tension with the adults. There were times when adults were yelling at kids because they thought they were getting cut in line. There were times I actually saw in, in one of the pools two adults almost got in a fist fight. Like, I, I'm not kidding you. These two adults were like, this is an adventure park for kids, right? Uh, you are at a, a, a water world basically for kids where kids are supposed to be having fun and these two adults are like in each other's faces yelling at each other. One of the wives is like trying to back. It got real crazy real quick. Thankfully, fists did not fly. But we saw all of this going on, and, and it started to occur to me, like, I think this place actually sets up or, or demonstrates the world operating system very well. Because the world's operating system is a system of selfishness, right? Like, I have to get mine. I need my desires at, at all costs before your needs, and that's why you see adults yelling at kids, don't you dare cut me. I paid for this experience. I paid a, an arm and a leg maybe for my kids to have it all, to come in here and do all the stuff. And I paid for the extra cabanas. That's another thing is you see a tiered system. Like you come into the water park and you like, you know, the lowly people, you have to just find some chairs. And so you see a lot of, like, adults, like, running in there, and they're like, I need as many chairs as I can get. And you see them, like, starting to stack blankets everywhere, and like, will I use all of these chairs at once? Probably not. But just in case all of my family decides we're going to take a break from swimming, all at the same time, I need seven chairs that will be unoccupied for the majority of the day. And so you see parents, like, fighting over chairs. But if you are the cool people, you get to pay extra money to get, like, your own cabana. And if you're really cool, you can pay more money for something else. And you can, you can keep paying for all these extra, right? But wh- think about it. When you come in here and you've paid for all the extras, you do not dare let anyone rob your kids of the joy that they are entitled to. And so we saw this system of entitlement is really what it came down to. Entitlement that I paid, so I get. And that's why all these parents start fighting, I paid. I get. Give me, give me, give me. Don't you dare threaten my ride by one second. My kid will ride on that ride as many possibly to- possible times as they can until they throw up, which did occur. It was our kid. <laughs> Whoops. But, but that's what we saw, and that's the, I think, it, to me, it, w- it demonstrated the epitome of the world system, a system of entitlement, a system of, I earn, and so I need more. You don't understand how hard I've worked 
So don't you dare threaten my happiness with your issues, with your problems. But God calls us to a different system. God calls us to a system of grace. And throughout Scripture, we see a theme of God calling us to an idea of selflessness, not selfishness. So the world system is selfishness. God's system is selflessness, where we are commanded over and over again to die to ourselves, to put others' needs before our own, to offer grace in a world that is full of, of selfishness. And that's what we're going to study today as we continue our sermon, our series on 1 John, Christ is life. So far in this series, John has been talking through the dark and the light. We've seen this stark contrast between the light and the dark. We heard how we cannot claim to be a part of the light and hate our brother. We cannot claim to have fellowship with God and still be in the dark. And I think it's important as we go through this series to remind ourselves that when, when John is talking about fellowship, he's not talking about salvation, but he's talking about living in this purposeful relationship with God. So you can put your faith and trust in Christ and be saved. And yet when you put up barriers to God... You no longer are in fellowship. You're no longer walking in this purposeful relationship with God. And you cannot claim to have this purposeful relationship with God and still be in the dark. We cannot be selfish and be plugged into the very source of light. We can't be at the Great Wolf Lodge ready to kick a kid in the head because he just cut us in line and still be plugged into the very source of light. Now, all of this that John has been throwing out here for us hits kind of hard. It's a big gut punch, I think. So John writes this next section, I think, as a, as a means of encouragement to us. So let's dig in. Starting uh, in chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world and the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So right away, as we get into this, this, this section of encouragement, we see that there are three different categories. There's the little children, there's the fathers, and there's the young men. And he's going to repeat this, right? So what's interesting here is he repeats this, and he repeats it with, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. And then he writes, I write to you. And he writes almost the exact same thing. In fact, when he writes to the fathers, it is the exact same thing. I write to you because you have known him who is from the beginning, I am writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. It's the exact same thing, and I think John is trying to be a, an encouragement. There's some gut punches that we have to deal with when we th think about having fellowship with God, walking with God, and yet not living a selfish life. 
to live selflessly, not selfishly. And so he writes this as encouragement, and we might ask the question, who are these three categories written to? What is involved in these three categories? And there's actually a lot of debate around these three categories. So I'm not going to get into all of the different perspectives. I'll just tell you what I think. I think the first uh, category, the little children, is addressing the congregation as a whole. The entire congregation, his entire audience, are the little children. The first instance of, I write to you little children, there's actually, he actually uses two different Greek words, and the first one contrasted with the second one. Now, in this first one, it, it literally means you who have come forth. Now, this became an idiom for infants because infants had just come forth from the womb. And so it meant infant. But what I think he's trying to tell us is that I'm writing to you who have, been, who have come forth. You who have been born of God. You who are born again. This signifies a familial tie. John wants them to know that there is a closeness that all believers have, that we have a connection, that we are all in Christ, even if we have disagreements, even if we don't always get along, we are still connected in Christ. So the entire congregation has been forgiven sins. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Not only have we been forgiven, but we've been forgiven for his name's sake. And I want us to think about that level of encouragement for a second. Oftentimes, our names identify who we are. In particular, if you live in a small town or a smaller town or a small community like Doney Park and people hear your name and they feel like they already know you. Oh, that's one of the stringers. I don't know about those boys. I have two older brothers. Both of them are very intelligent. I would say that they are both more intelligent than I am. Both of them throughout elementary school got A's easily got A's. So when I had a teacher that they had, and they saw the last name Holbert, let's face it, you don't meet a lot of Holberts, they would automatically compare me to my siblings. They would automatically assume, because Brian and Jensen were great students, because they got easy A's, Aaron is going to be the same way. And uh, I... I did not live up to their expectations. Oftentimes I let them down because I had been identified by my last name. So they didn't see me as a unique individual. They saw me as my last name. Some of us have last names that we can be proud of, that we hang our hat on, that we say, look at the great things that my family has done. Some of us have last names that we wish we would rather not have. I've known some girls that couldn't wait to get married so they could change their last name because it was such an embarrassment. Because what came with that last name was a reputation. 
And so what he is saying here is you are no longer identified with your family of origin. But you have a new name. You are identified with Christ. You are identified with God. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Now just think about the names of Jesus that John has used so far. Just in this chapter and a half. He's talked about Jesus being the word of life. He's talked about Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being our advocate, Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, Jesus as the righteous one, Jesus as the Savior. So when you think about the names of God, they're descriptions of God. And for the the sake of His name and what He has promised, your sins are forgiven. God stakes His reputation on it. God stakes His name on it. That you have been forgiven. If you are still holding on to your sin, let it go. If you're still trying to pay the price for your sin, let it go. Jesus has paid the price. So if the term little children is for the entire congregation, what about the fathers and the young men? I think since he's already addressed the congregation as whole, now he's actually addressing different levels of maturity. And there's two different levels of maturity that he's addressing here. And I think John gives each level some encouragement that they need. So the fathers, he writes to them, because you know him who is from the beginning. The fathers would be the spiritually mature. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for knowledge. There's oida, which is like head knowledge. Everybody say it with me, really? One, two, three, oida. That's head knowledge. That's factual you know facts. You memorize facts. You can have oida and be very smart. The other one is gnosko. Gnosko means to have an intimate knowledge of. Let's say gnosko together. One, two, three. Gnosko. That means to have an intimate knowledge of. I think about it like this. If you know of a celebrity, let's say you pick a favorite celebrity. I know a lot of people that, that, that really like celebrities, so maybe it's a sports person. It's an athlete. Maybe it is a musician or a movie star. Maybe it's a, it's a politician. I don't know. But think of your favorite celebrity and, and all the facts you may know about them. I've known some people that had like so many facts memorized about someone like Elvis Presley. And they knew where he was born and all the different aspects of him growing up. And they knew the facts. They had a lot of oida about the celebrity. But they never once sat down with that celebrity and got to know them on an intimate, personal level. That's the difference here. Now, the word that is used, the Greek word that is used here for these fathers that he writes because they know him who is from the beginning, isn't oida. It's not that you have memorized a bunch of different facts. It's actually gnosko. It's not that you just have all these facts memorized about God, but that you know him on an intimate, personal level. This is so important for us because you can memorize a bunch of facts about God. You can memorize theology. You can have doctrine down, but still be missing gnosko. Just like somebody who memorizes a bunch of facts about a celebrity, but never actually has intimacy with that celebrity. Now, maturing in Gnosko doesn't just come with studying facts. And I'd say it doesn't even just come with time. 
although time does have something to do with it. I think gnosko comes with exposure. An easy way to think about intimacy is to think about it as in terms of into me see. Intimacy, into me see. See the real me. Don't just see the person that I portray on the outside. Don't just, just see the person that I've cleaned up really well. But see me, all of me, all of the ugly parts, all of the parts I want to keep hidden. Every single aspect of me. That's why when we use the term physical intimacy, what do we mean? We don't mean someone who, two different people have never even seen each other before. They could even memorize facts about each other, right? I know that their body fat ratio is this. I know that they could bench press so many pounds. But you have no physical intimacy because you've never even seen each other. But when we talk about physical intimacy, we talk about being naked together. That you have seen and touched. There's an intimacy there because you are exposed fully. The same thing goes with, with a spiritual side. Being fully exposed to God, not hiding anything, not, not stepping out into the light, feeling exposed and saying, God, this is too much. You've seen too much. You know too much. I'm going to step back into the darkness. But it means to be fully exposed and known. So how do you grow in Gnosko with God? You let yourself be exposed to God. It comes by stepping into the light, feeling exposed, but letting God know every part of you anyway. There's no part of you that you can actually cover up by God, but so often we want to pretend like we can hide something from God. And all that hiding does, it doesn't actually hide it from God. All it does is wreck your ability to have true intimacy with God. So gnosko, growing in gnosko, this intimate knowledge of God, comes by stepping into the light, feeling exposed, but letting God have every part of you anyway. Letting God expose every part of you. And if you are holding back from God, if the light shines and you don't like the feeling, and you step back, then you might have a lot of facts about God memorized but you will lack true intimacy with God. You'll have a lot of oida, but you will lack gnosko. Gnosko comes from exposure. So if the fathers are the spiritually mature, those who have this gnosko, who have been exposed and, and have an intimacy with God, then the young men would represent those who are spiritually immature. The encouragement that God gives them is that they have the victory. So he writes to the, to the young men, because you have overcome the evil one, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So the encouragement then is that they have victory, that they are strong. Have you ever been in a physically grueling activity? Maybe it's hiking the Grand Canyon. And you felt like you just couldn't go on. It was too much. You couldn't possibly take another step. And you see the miles that you still have to go, especially as you're hiking up the end, right? You're, you're hiking up the end and it's like just stairs for the last 
two miles, right? And you're like, there's no way I can do two miles of this. My, my legs are aching. They're thro- my heart's beating hard. There's no way I could do this. But you were there with someone who just continued to encourage you. And they didn't say, take all of the two miles at once. They just said, just one more step. You are strong. You can take one more step. Just one more stare. You can do it. You can do this one. You don't have to think about the full two miles. Just one more stare. You're there. Just one more stare. And all of these steps, all of these stares, they added up. And at the end, you looked back and you saw that you made it. But you would have never made it without that encouragement. You didn't think you had the strength. But that encouragement kept you going. I think that is what John is doing here. He is giving encouragement to those who are in the trenches, feeling exposed and they want to turn back, feeling exposed because it's uncomfortable to feel exposed. He's writing to those who every day are faced with a decision to live for themselves, to live selflessly, or to live selfishly. And they don't think they can continue They don't think they can do it anymore. They don't think they can live the life that they've been called to. They want to go back into the darkness because it's just too much. And he's telling them, look, Christ has already given you the victory. You are strong. You can keep going. Take one step, another step. Keep going because God has given you the victory. So this section gets very personal. We can hear John's love for his audience. And it is this love and it is this command or this encouragement that drives the first command found in the letter. So we've already gotten into the second chapter and we finally get to the first command. And the first command is do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the first command that he gives us is do not love the world. John has been describing our relationship with God and the outcomes of this relationship. Now he gets down to it. Do not love the world. Which would lead us to the question, what does he mean by world? Because if we miss this, it will impact our relationship with the Father, right? Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, once again, he's addressing saved people already. I think this goes back to, you are, if you are a Christian and you're still stuck in the world's operating system, it's going to affect your relationship with God. You cannot have fellowship with God and, and love the world at the same time. So I think that's what he's getting at here. So we need to know what is the world. I think the world is, what it, there are three different ways that the term world is used throughout the New Testament. The first one is it can mean uh, like all of creation. Another way that is used is that uh, all of humanity. So think of, for God so loved the world. That means God loved all of humanity, right? But another way reference that it could mean is that the world's operating system. That's another way that it's used. Do not love the world's operating system. I think that's what he's getting into here. Do not love the world's operating system. So the command isn't to not love others. That seems the opposite of what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We get to love others, as well as the new commandment that John just gave us, or the commandment that we see with fresh eyes. 
The command isn't to not love God's creation. Genesis is clear that we're supposed to be good managers or good stewards of God's creation. So it must boil down to this operating system. I believe that the world's operating system is selfishness, to put yourself first, to think of yourself before you think of others, to be at the Great Wolf Lodge, and when you get splashed a little bit, you start yelling at everybody, and you start going, throwing blows because you're ready to defend your self-centeredness at any cost. So that's the world's operating system. Me first, always. So if that's the world's operating system, then what are the things that flow out of the operating system? The behaviors and characteristics of the operating system. Well, that's found in verse 16. For all that is in the world, so the world's operating system, this operating system of selfishness, the characteristics are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So this world operating system of selfishness has characteristics of the desires of the flesh. That's the first one he lists. Now, most of us, when we hear the term desires of the flesh, when we hear the flesh, we automatically start to think of sinful or immoral behavior. We think of the list found in Galatians, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, jealousy, sorcery, fits of anger. That's the list we start to think of. And it is true that these are part of the desires of the flesh. But if that's all that you think of, you will miss what actually causes those. These are the works of the flesh. So they are produced by the flesh. But we need to get to the root of what causes though those. To get a better understanding, we can go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. If you remember back in Genesis 12, God calls out Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to build you into a great nation, and from this, you will bless the rest of the world. As the story goes on throughout Genesis, Abraham and his wife get old. In fact, they get beyond Sarah's childbearing age. And so they think, well, God must have missed it somehow. Or, or maybe, you know what? God kind of needs our help, right? Like, I'm, I know he created the heavens and the earth, but we're getting a little old, so God needs our help. And so they take matters into their own hands. Sarah gives Abraham her slave, and they try to achieve through their own efforts what God promised he would do. Now, I'm going to follow this theme a little bit more, but I want to sum this up. The flesh is trying to achieve through your own efforts what God promised he would do. I'll say that again. The flesh is trying to achieve through your own efforts what God promised he would do. So after they go through with this. After they try to achieve through their own efforts what God promised he would do, God actually comes back to Abraham, and he renews his covenant with Abraham. Now, after he renews this, he reminds Abraham that he cannot do this through his flesh, that God is, is going to be the one that does this. It's not Abraham. It's not going to be his works. It's not going to be his flesh. It's going to be God. So as a symbol to remind Abraham that it is not by flesh, but by God, God commands Abraham to be circumcised. 
And so circumcision throughout Jewish history, circumcision will then be a reminder that this promise is not going to be obtained through our flesh. That you cannot earn it, that you can't work for it, that you can't do it because God has promised it. That's what circumcision is really symbolic for. It's symbolic for a covenant that Abraham, that God made with Abraham. And God said, I'm going to do this. You can't obtain it on your own. You can't obtain it through your own works. You can't obtain it through your flesh. That's a pretty serious symbolic imagery, right? So circumcision then is a reminder that the Israelites could not achieve through their own power what God has promised. So then flesh is not just sinful behavior. Flesh is not just immoral behavior, but is symbolic of us trying to achieve what God has promised through our own power. We're trying to achieve through our own power what God has promised. Essentially, it's us trying to be God, telling God we don't need you, we can do it on our own. Another way of saying the flesh is They're practicing self-righteousness. They can earn their own righteousness. I don't need God to be righteous. I don't need Jesus to pay the price for my sins. I can do it on my own. I can take care of my rebellion on my own. Paul makes this argument in Romans 4. I'll turn there really quickly, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So did you catch that here? In verse 1, our forefathers, our forefather, according to the flesh, did Abraham gain anything through the flesh? No! For if Abraham was justified by works, so what, what's happened here is the flesh and works, Paul has used them as synonyms. Not synonyms, synonyms, right? You could, you could actually flip those two around. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to works? For if Abraham was justified by flesh, he's using flesh and works as synonyms. They could be interchanged. We see that flesh is trying to achieve through our own works what God has promised. But we see also in this one verse that we can't achieve it. For if, for if he had achieved it, he had something to boast about, but not for, before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his works. It wasn't his flesh. It was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. We see this theme throughout all, we could trace this theme throughout all of Scripture. Flesh being trying to achieve what God has already promised. But we can pick it up in Galatians as well. Galatians 3, starting in verse 2. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Now, the way he phrases this question is, clearly, it's by the Spirit, right? Or sorry, we receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith. Clearly, that's it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. 
We put our faith and trust in Christ, and the Spirit came upon us. Are you so foolish? Listen to the language that Paul uses here. It is serious language. We take this seriously because the Bible takes it seriously. It is serious language. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? He's calling them foolish now. Why is he calling them foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's foolishness to think that we can earn what God has already promised. But once again, we see Paul using flesh and works interchangeably. We could say, did you receive the Spirit by flesh or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the works of the law? He's using it once again interchangeably. Paul dedicates the entire book of Galatians, actually, to unpack this idea. And what's really crazy is the symbol of circumcision to remind the Israelites that they cannot achieve God's promises through their own flesh. They actually turned into a work that they used to prove their righteousness, right? They used the circumcision, which was supposed to be a reminder that they couldn't do it through the flesh, as a self-righteous work. Essentially, they took this symbol that was supposed to remind them all the time that their flesh couldn't do it, and they turned it into a fleshly work. So the main idea of Galatians is that you can't earn your righteousness. You can't even mature in righteousness through your works. It can only be by the Spirit. So we read this through Galatians, and then typically as Christians, we get to Galatians 5, and we read, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Uh, Let me skip down. But uh, now the works of the flesh are evident. And we read all of this, and we see how how they're uh, used interchangeably. And then we get to this section, and we say, oh, the flesh is immorality. That's what the flesh is. Not understanding that it is actually trying to achieve what God has already promised. That's the work, that's the flesh. Now, what does the flesh produce? The flesh produces all of this immorality sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. That's what trying to, to produce what God has already promised, that's what that produces, is all of these behaviors. So if, if it's so clear to us throughout Romans, throughout Galatians, as we, if we can see the theme, we can trace the theme, why do we as Christians constantly try to make the flesh an immoral thing? And I think the reason is because we struggle with self-righteousness ourselves. We struggle with self-righteousness ourselves. And so we don't want to read about how the flesh is us trying to achieve what God has promised. Because we want to go back to the Great, to the great Wolf Lodge, and we want to pay the price, and we want to have a tiered system, and we want to prove why we're so much better than other people. And it is through our works that we prove that. Instead of paying attention to what 
what God has used as a theme throughout Scripture, that the flesh is us trying to achieve what God has promised. Us trying to achieve through our own works what God has promised he would do. And God has promised that if you put your faith and trust in him, he will make you righteous. You can't earn it. You can't do it yourself. You cannot produce it. So that's what the desire of the flesh is. Trying to earn what God has promised. Next he gives us the desire of the eyes. Eyes in those days typically represented covetousness. So looking at something that someone else has and desiring it for yourself. This could be anything from how someone looks to their personality to the material things they own. Within the world's operating system, we do not trust God to take care of us, to give us what we need. So we begin to look elsewhere. We begin to look at what others have, and we start to believe that if only I had fill in the blank, if only I had so-and-so's personality, if only I had so-and-so's looks, if only I had the money so-and-so had, then I would truly be satisfied, then I would finally be happy. And I think that type of thinking reveals that you're not trusting God with your life. And it reveals that you're still stuck in an operating system that is selfish and self-focused. The next aspect is the pride of life. In the world's operating system, we are constantly comparing each other. We are constantly being compared, and we are constantly comparing. This is the pride of life. It is a ranking system. It is trying to figure out where I stand based on my achievements. Pride of life will be reflected in whatever status symbol is important to me or seems to find, I find my identity in. It's so easy to turn all kinds of things into a status symbol. From the car you drive, to the house you own, to the place you live, to your degrees, the number of your degrees, what your degree is in. Maybe your pride of life is that you don't have a degree, but you made it anyways. That's the pride of life. So we've got the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. But this operating system of selfishness and the things of this operating system are passing away. They are diminishing because Jesus has the victory. The operating system that came with Satan and the fall of man is a rebellion against God. It is trying to be our own God. It is putting ourselves first. And the result is a slavery to the system. But when Jesus paid the price for our sins, he broke that system. We no longer need to strive for our righteousness because he paid for it. We no longer need to play the comparison game and try to prove we are worthy because he has declared us worthy. It goes back to what we've talked about a few weeks ago, that he is our propitiation and our advocate. As we stand accused before a holy and righteous God, knowing that our works cannot pay the penalty for our sin, knowing that our works can never actually make us righteous, Jesus stands next to us and says, the price has been paid, I know because I paid it. So Jesus is victorious, we are free from sin, and the new operating system is here. And then John writes, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So the, oper- the world's operating system of selfishness is contrasted with doing the will of God. God's operating system is a grace-based system. It is a system that says your value is not determined by your flesh, but is determined by your maker. He paid the price. He is your advocate. He is your propitiation. He has made it possible to break free from the world's operating system, to break free from the flesh, and live entirely for him with a whole new purpose, with joy and contentment, fully exposed and yet not ashamed because you have intimacy with your maker. He is the propitiation. He is our advocate. And he has given us a new operating system where we can fully depend and trust upon him. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you paid the price. We thank you that we can have Gnosko with you, not just Oida, not just a bunch of facts about someone that we would never even meet, but we have Gnosko where we can be personal with you, where we can be intimate with you, where we can be fully exposed to you and yet loved anyway. And it is because we can have this gnosko that we can be fully exposed, that we can also leave the world's operating system behind, that we can leave the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life behind, and we can focus in on you and do the will that you have called us to do. That we can live in your operating system of grace that we can fully embrace who you have called us to be. We don't have to be defined by our sin. We don't have to be defined by our mess-ups and our failures because we are new creations defined by you. And we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.